This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to a very special two-hour, 375th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of our greatest and most chameleonic actors. The British Film Institute called him arguably the finest British actor of his generation. Vanity Fair described him as the most brilliant actor of his generation. And he was labeled the greatest film actor of his generation by Alec Baldwin, a candidate for the title of Greatest Living Actor by Colin Firth, and The Reason I'm Acting by Christian Bale. I'm talking, of course, about the great Gary Oldman. Oldman started out in the British theater, but made his name in British TV and arthouse indies like Mike Lee's Mean Time in 1983, Alex Cox's Sid and Nancy in 1986, and Stephen Frears's Prick Up Your Ears in 1987. Considered, along with Daniel Day-Lewis and Tim Roth, a central member of a group of up-and-coming young British actors nicknamed the Brit Pack, he eventually moved to Hollywood, where he demonstrated incredible range in everything from Oliver Stone's JFK in 1991 to Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula in 1992, and played memorable villains in films like Tony Scott's True Romance in 1993 Luc Besson's The Professional in 1994 and The Fifth Element in 1997, and Wolfgang Peterson's Air Force One, also in 1997. After a period of working less frequently, mostly in supporting parts in the Harry Potter and Batman film franchises, which introduced him to a new generation of moviegoers, he reemerged over the past decade doing some of the best work of his career. He was an Oscar and BAFTA Award nominee for Thomas Alfredson's 2011 film Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. He was an Oscar Golden Globe SAG Critics' Choice and BAFTA Award winner for Joe Wright's 2017 film Darkest Hour, in which he played Winston Churchill. And he is currently nominated for Golden Globe SAG and Critics' Choice Awards, with Academy and BAFTA Award nominations likely to follow, for his portrayal of the hard-drinking screenwriter and wit Herman J. Mechwicks, in David Fincher's 2020 Netflix drama, Mank. Over the course of our conversation, the 62-year-old and I discussed his unexpected journey from a working-class British home to the stage to the screen, the things that occurred outside of the public eye that shaped his professional path from a battle with alcoholism to being typecast as a villain to becoming a single father, the challenges and rewards of playing people who actually lived, 
from Sid Vicious to Joe Orton to Lee Harvey Oswald to Winston Churchill to Herman Mankiewicz, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Gary, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Great to have you on it. On this podcast, we always begin with truly the the, the most basic question. Uh, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in uh, South London, 1958. A very typical kind of uh, working class family, I guess you guess you could say. Um my mother, in fact, before she met my father, used to do tapestry. She, was, she used to do embroidery and work on big tapestries. And my father, he was an engineer in the Royal Navy. He was in the North Atlantic convoys. He was in um, uh, Okinawa in the Pacific and then came back and then used that skill to find a, a job you know, as, a, as a, a civilian. So that's, he was pipe fitter, welder. And that was his main, his main thing. But he could put his hand to many things. He could, he was very, he was a painter and a decorator for a while. He could do carpentry, you know, weld, solder, make all sorts of uh, things. He was a pretty... Pretty yeah. pretty handy guy. Well, from reading everything I can find uh, from over the course of your career where people have been interviewing you and profiling you, it seems like, you know, you have said it was a bit of a tumultuous childhood for you in the sense that I guess he was sort of out of the picture after you were seven and your mother was working a lot, I think, to make up the difference, like two, two jobs at one point you said to just, you know, take care of, of you guys. Um, but one respite, even from an early age, it seems like was the movies. And you talk about an experience at the age of six that you say was your happiest memory in some senses that you have of your childhood. What was, what was that trip to the movies, I believe, with, a, with your sister? Oh, with Jackie, my sister, that was a hard day's night. I was a kid who, if you were to give me um, a bunch of paper and some pens or pencils, I would be yeah, as quiet as a, as, a, as a mouse. I could just go off and amuse myself I would draw. I had a quite a, <laughs> I had quite a, a, a collection at one time of um, GI Joes. Okay, okay. That was the time when it was um, there was Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet, obviously Adam West, <laughs> Batman yep. was around, um, and I remember dressing up as Batman 
I, I, I took a, I, I took a wide plastic sort of 60s belt that my mother had and I uh, stuck cigarette packets to it and then painted it yellow and made a, a Batman utility belt and some crepe paper to make a cape. And, um, uh, I was Dracula in a fancy dress competition, I think, when I was like five. So um, I was always... Uh, you know, you'd watch an episode of uh, you'd watch an episode of Batman or Doctor Who, and then that would fire my imagination, and I then could li live with that for a week or so, you know, until the next episode. So I was always um, I loved uh, loved that. I loved music. Both both my sisters, Jackie more so than than Maureen. Was into music and the and the Beatles, so really all those early albums and the singles, um, I knew the lyrics and could could sing along. And then of course we went to a Hard Day's Night, and that was I, I remember it like it was yesterday. And I was my sister kept shushing me because I was singing at the top of my lungs to all the to all the songs because, you know, we had the album. My trick was to play a 45s for, for the audience, you know, for the people that are listening. And I mean, my, you know, if you show my kids, a, you know, a, a CD and they... They don't know what it is, but or let alone a record or a record player. <laughs> right. But uh, I would play the forty-five at thirty-three and a third, so I could slow it down to learn the lyrics. And now we're talking a Beatles song, for example, "Everybody's Green," but I'm the one who won your love. I thought he was singing about green people <laughs> because yeah. um, I'm five. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what green with envy means. So right. uh, I, I would imagine these green people. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I was, uh, yeah, I loved it. I, I mean, I, I love the movies and... I mean, I'm amazed now of how many movies I've seen. I, mm -hmm. I, I go through, sometimes I'll say to my wife, you know, do you want to, do you fancy putting something on? And then you go through the Netflix or the, or the Apple or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is. And I, and, and I flick through and I go, well, let's, let's look at a classic. Let's, mm -hmm. let's go to like a classic. And then I'm looking at these movies and clicking through and I think, yeah, I've seen that one, I've seen that one. Oh, my God, I've seen that one, seen that one. And this partly is a, a diet of, of go, really just going to the movies at all those amazing reruns. Right. Well, that itself was not necessarily a reflection of a desire to be an actor for a while. Uh, I know that like most kids probably uh, you wanted to, I think be a football player or whatever. And then yeah. there was an actual moment though, an actual turning point 
And I want to really hone in on that because I think it involves somebody else who I've been fortunate enough to interview. And I, I, I get it having seen his work. What was it about Malcolm McDowell that got you uh, hooked? <laughs> yeah. I remember where I was and uh, what, what the room looked like. Just it, it, my memory of it is so vivid. And we, we had this thing from Monday to Friday. There was this, the, the, our main news program. The big program was News at 10. And it played for half an hour. And it would, it would go over the, whatever that, that day or what was current. It was uh, rather like someone would buy The Times or... You, you know, I think families everywhere in Britain would sit down and watch news at 10. And there, and you'd get your, it was a smorgasbord of all the different things that were going on locally in the world. And, and I remember a preview of a film. It was called Raging Moon, I think directed by Brian Forbes, starring Malcolm McDowell, Nanette Newman, and it was to follow News at 10. And I saw this face, those huge blue eyes that are like saucers, those incredible eyes of Malcolm's. And I remember going in, and I think my mum, my mum at the time, she was in the kitchen, and I remember going in and saying, there's this film coming on after News at 10. I, I think we should see it. I said, it looks really, like, fantastic. And I guess I was at the age, I had seen Montgomery Clift, I had seen Marlon Brando, Michael Caine, Sean Connery, you know, all the, all the sort of growing up, all the usual suspects. But there was something that connected. There was a wonderful mixture of menace, and danger and vulnerability about Malcolm that I um, con I felt that I sort of connected with. And it was like um, um, alcoholics uh, often speak about a, mo a moment of clarity. And it, and it was my sort of moment of clarity. It was like the lights of the room got brighter. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to do that and never really looked. I mean, I had, I'd done, I've done other things, worked at other jobs in my life, but that was, a, it was like a sort of calling. It was like a spiritual awakening or something. And I thought, that's what I've got to do. And it's interesting because the way you described what appealed to you about Malcolm's persona, which was certainly reinforced in some of his other roles, Clockwork Orange and other things, that could be the way that somebody describes the Gary Oldman screen persona, right? The sort of sense that the, at least for, you know, a portion of a, a number of the roles, an underlying sense of menace, what's this guy going to do, the unpredictability, but there's vulnerability, all of that. It's just interesting. I don't know if that's a conscious or subconscious thing that you might've been emulating him. Uh, yeah, perhaps. I, you know, it's a funny thing. I, I read recently David, David Fincher, not getting ahead of ourselves here, but, 
But David Fincher, he, there's a quote from him recently, and I, I hope I get it right. I don't want to... He said something like, if you never want to be happy with what you're capable of, then please go ahead and be a director. <laughs> and he said, I mean that seriously, laughing, crying. Now, I connect with that because that may not be for everyone, but I could apply that to myself and, any, and a lot of people that I know, whether they paint, whether they are, you know, actors or whether they're musicians or whether they're composers. It's a surprise to me. I remember working with Winona Ryder and we were in a rehearsal and she said to me, God, man, you're, you're intense. She said, you're so intense. And I was actually a little offended. Ah, uh, because <laughs> you don't necessarily realise the way that no, maybe none of us do the way that we come across to others or the assumptions. Yeah, and I and I think over the years as I've become, you know, obviously you get a, you get a certain technique and you you hopefully get better at what you do and you get more experienced and you can apply that and bring that to the work. I think now I I know that I'm obsessive and I come in with a with an, uh, a commitment and an energy which can appear sometimes uh, being angry or it's passion. It's yeah, not me yeah. being... <laughs> I'm not pissed off. I'm just... Right. I'm, 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 I'm passionate. And I, now, I, can, I can recognise it now a little, but we never quite know how we're coming over. Right. I don't, you know... I think Malcolm, I think he gets that for nothing. Well, and you both are actually, from my experience, very lovely people. So I, it's funny, well, I though. Like that, to, yeah. yeah, I like to think we are. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's it's when, um, you know, people are uh, uh, discovering or rediscovering Amanda because of right. her performance in, right. um, in, 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 in Mank. Now, I've worked with Amanda before, and I always thought she was a, a just... We got, we got on very well, and she, we worked together in a, a less fortunate uh, <laughs> scenario, right. but we connected. And, and then you read things like, she's luminous, and she lights up. For me, Amanda gets out of bed... And she's luminous. If you met her and you were around her, you know, she gets that for nothing. Right, you know, right, I, right. And, and, that was, and that was always there. And I think that maybe this role of, uh, of Marion Davis is just, uh, and David perhaps appreciate what, and highlight really what is already, what is already God-given. Well, let's uh, let's go back for a second to your really becoming an actor, because I think that, you know, what is a, I believe, 15 year old, what is a 15 year old do who's just decided that that's what their course in life, you know, that they want to pursue is, um, I guess, in your case, someone urged you to to get involved with youth theater, which is something that you did and then 
the question arises, like, you know, how do you pursue this coming from very humble beginnings and where, where do you go with this? And I believe that you were at 17, just a few years into this pursuit, kind of unceremoniously rejected by Rada in a way that might have made some people might have shaken their confidence, might have made them say, oh, I better do something else. Can you just take us back to that moment where, you know, you're you're dissuaded in a way by by the authority, in a sense, uh, an authority figure, and yet you persevered with this path? Well, it was an unusual thing. It was an unusual thing to announce. It wasn't a common career to want to pursue coming from where I came from. In a way, I tried, it's funny enough, this is kind of connected. I perhaps don't think it's such, it's not such a surprise to me that I then, that I became an actor. I tried to, like all kids, I was into all sorts of sports. I I was very, I was a very athletic kid and I tried boxing for a while. And um, I think when I arrived, I took to it relatively quickly. And I think in the gym, when I would shadow box and skip and hit the bag, I think people there must have thought, you know, you know, cri- crikey, we got, we got a, you know, he's a natural. The kid, <laughs> the kid's going to go, you know. And until I got in the ring and then I got the, Absolute crap beaten out of me. <laughs> but I looked very good. I could do all the moves. I think I was just acting. Just acting. I was very good at, at, at acting being a boxer. I play the piano. I used to play it, obviously. I was much better at it when I was sort of working at it and practising it every day. But I don't know if I have a facility for it, but... I got to a certain point in that process where I thought, I don't know if I'm actually just going to, I don't know if I'm going to get any better. You know, I move my hands in the right way. I can kind of hit the notes, but um, so it's almost like I tried these different things and I was sort of perhaps play acting at them or or searching to find that thing maybe I was good at. And... uh, so it doesn't sort of surprise me, but it surprised a lot of other people. And they said, well, you know, how, how, how the hell are you going to do that? I had never been in a school play. I, I, it's, I'm ashamed to say this. I had actually never been to the theatre. It was uh, not a thing we did because I had no experience of it. I, didn't, I kind of didn't know what I was missing. So I favoured movies over. And... Um, I went to um, one of my teachers at school and said, how do I go about auditioning for a drama school or working at a theatre group? Or, and, um, and they recommended a local place and I, I happened to just fall. See, it's all luck. It's a lot. Yes, it's talent and hard work, but it's also the... the these harmonic things that seem to come together. And I went to the Greenwich Young People's Theatre and 
it just so happened that someone was sick and out that day and that the artistic director was there. And so that's who I met. That's who I spoke to. That's who said, well, you need a, a, a modern and you need a classical piece if you're going to audition for a drama school. So I recommend that you do this, you do that. And he, and he guided me that way. And um, I got my first audition, my very first audition at RADA. And they said, thank you very much. Do you have anything else that you could fall back on? And you're 15, you know, and you're thinking, well, what do you, you know, what do you, what, what, well, I used to be a fisherman. I mean, I suppose I could always do that. You know, I tried being an astronaut for a while. I guess I could sort of go back and fall back on that. I mean, you're, you know, it was a blow that was, I remember one person lighting a cigarette and someone else that was knitting while I was auditioning. And they said, uh, no, thank you. And uh, that was a little bit, that, that was a blow because all the people that I had, that I revere, and many, many of them still do, John Hurt, Alan Bates, Tom Courtney, those kind, those, uh, Albert Finney, mm -hmm. those sort of actors that I grew up with had all gone to RADA. And so it was my sort of dream to, I guess, follow in my hero's footsteps, but that was not to be. And, 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 uh, and so I persevered. I dusted myself off and said, okay. I had another audition, um, the, second, the second one I had, and they accepted me and I, and, and, and I, uh, I got in. But boy, did I, I had a lot to learn. This was the Rose Bruford College Rose of Bruford. Speech and Drama. Yeah, um, yeah. three-year program there. And uh, and then coming out of that, um, it does seem like pretty quickly you were working at a high level in the theater. You obviously impressed a lot of people. And I hope that one thing that we can do is just kind of not zoom through, but almost zoom yeah. through, you know, touch upon some of these just amazing kind of landmarks along the way that you've you've done so much great work that it's it's a lot to cover but I think it'll just remind people of how many things they have loved you and if we can just talk about maybe if I mention the project if you say sort of just how it came about or what most stands out to you yeah. I know you've done this before uh, <laughs> so uh, I guess though first of all while you were still primarily working in the theater this is before film really became a, a primary part of your life with Mike Lee. And, and meantime, this was on channel four, 83, Maybe you're in some ways, I guess your, your first important screen role. And I just wonder for that reason, how it came about, what made somebody think of you for a screen role? Were you yourself even hoping to be a screen actor at that point? No, well, I, I thought to myself, now, something happened, you see, while I was at drama school. Taxi Driver happened. And I'd look at this film that I would go and see sort of multiple times. I'd never seen anything quite like it. I'd never seen any kind of, like, directing like it. And the performances 
And so it was this sort of untouchable thing that was way over there. That's what other people did. So that's, that's what Robert De Niro did. He was, and, and of course I grew up on a diet of James Bond. And so it was Michael Caine, Sean Connery, Al Pacino, um, Robert De Niro. You know, they were sort of movie people and I was, I was going to leave drama school and then just it was a natural thing of going into the, the, the theatre in, in, in which I, and I did. But I was, uh, this is the, the days when Mike Lee was making movies for TV. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to be walking in Soho one day and I met up with an actress that I'd worked with a few years previously and she said, oh, um, I've just come from um, an audition. You know, Mike Lee's putting together, he's doing a new film and he's auditioning. So I went, oh, thanks for the tip, you know. And um, I, I called my agent and I said, oh, I hear Mike Lee's doing a... We, we were all fans of Mike's work, you know. And they called and then my agent called back and said, well, you know, you go go there at three o'clock on Wednesday. Or, and... Um, I met Mike, we interviewed, I then went back, did an improvisation for him and, and got that role. So it was just, uh, I, if I had not bumped into my friend, mm. I would never have even heard about it, you know. It's amazing. And, and there was a certain type of, there was a bit of a stigma. There was a certain type of TV that you did. I did um, my very, very, very first performance on screen is in a film called Remembrance, which launched the first week or two weeks of Channel 4. Mm. Like it was this big thing, film on four. But it was all it was all stuff you would hear on the grapevine, you know, and, and it was almost it's accidental. Yeah. That that these things would come along. And and funny enough, my I, I would have my career or film career could have started earlier, except that I wanted to do plays. And I remember there was a film that my agent at the time wanted me to do. And I wanted to go off and do a play. And he said, but you've never done a film before. This is like a feature film. And I said, well, yeah, but, you know, what am I going to do? If I go and do that movie, I'll have, you know... a." What will I get when I get back? I'll have a suntan and some money in the bank, but I will not have had the satisfaction of speaking those words in that play. So I did the play, and then, of course, he then threatened to drop me as a client and said, if you do the play, I won't represent you anymore. So I said, "Okay, fair enough. Then don't represent me. Wow. I was a cheeky (laughs) lad back then, you know. Well, but what do you think that was about? Because a lot of people would say... Give me the quick paycheck and then I'll come back and do more theater, but I'm not going to turn down money. I mean, here's, and let me actually connect that to the next question if I can, because I think there's some overlap, which is that after meantime, you didn't start, you know, regularly doing movies for another three years. And that was Sid and Nancy, which was another one like the one you're talking about that I believe you initially turned down. And then then at that case, the way you've described it before, it was like, well, I, I, I guess I, I shouldn't pass on that 
paycheck. So, um, what, as, as a struggling theater actor, so what, what was it that until Sid and Nancy made you just say, you know, screw it. I'll, I, I don't need the money. I'll rather be in the theater. It was just the quality of the work. Yeah. It was just simply, here's a feature film and I'm reading the script and I thought it's just not very good. <laughs> and here is this play over here written by Joe Alton that is really good. Mm-hmm. And I'd rather say these words. Mm-hmm. I'd mm-hmm. rather work on this than this over here. It was, um, I had the, for- the, the good fortune. I did Sid and Nancy, this crazy drug-addled punk, and immediately followed it with Joe Orton, homosexual playwright who gets murdered by his lover. Break up your ears, yeah. Right. I mean, I didn't engineer that. That, <laughs> that just was how it happened. So you get these two sort of very, very sort of different characters. I could have worked with Stephen earlier, but I met him on a... I'm Stephen Frears, and I met him on a film that he made, and I, I went and I, we had the interview... And I can't believe it. I just, I just told him I just didn't think the script was very believable. <laughs> and he said to me, he said to me, okay, fair, fair enough. I said, yeah, I just don't know if, um, you know, and I said, I, so I've sort of come from that neighbourhood and don't really, don't think people talk like that. And, uh, I, and, and, you see, and he said, well, I appreciate your notes. <laughs> And um, thank you very much. Well, you know who, as I understand it, owes you a a thank you note for that is Daniel Day-Lewis, because I believe that was my beautiful laundrette, which was the sort of beginning of of him. But it's interesting that let's let's come back for a second to Sid and Nancy, because I mean, well, let me just put this. Let me just put this on the record. Sure. I'm not saying I got the role. <laughs> but I, I nixed any chance again. Role, right? <laughs> that was it. And 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 God bless him. He then came back and and, and met me again and cast me in Prick Up Your Ears. So I was going to say that's the that's the amazing feelings. part, right? <laughs> and I and I've remained friendly with Stephen, you know, right. ever since. So right. Okay, so that first of the of the major film roles, though, which I I know I've got to keep it moving if we're going to cover right. cover them. But yeah. I I just to set the scene here, Sid Vicious gets offered to you as a result. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong. You're getting all these accolades for for being in this Danny Boyle directed production at the Royal Court Pope's Wedding, and you get offered Sid Vicious, and you say no. And to this day, I'm amazed to read that you are not as enamored with that as a lot of your fans are. So um, just take me into, I mean, you obviously tremendously committed to that part. I read you'd lost 35 pounds. People loved it. What's your prevailing memory of, of that production? Well, I have to say that turning stuff down or initially turning things down is my process. It must be, because I've done it with nearly everything I've ever played. 
<laughs> and it goes away and comes back or it doesn't come back. But The frisbee, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just... Why, you know, why me? Why are they thinking of me? God, if I were directing this, I think of, I wouldn't cast me, I'd cast that guy. You know, it's, I go through all this torture, unnecessary, I suppose, but now I've just accepted that it's the way that I function and it's the way that I work. I really, I was a James Brown, Tamina Motown guy. I liked Elton John. I did like Rod Stewart. David Bowie was amazing, and um, and I liked blues, the Beatles, as we said, you know, Beach Boys and things. I was not a punk guy, and um, I'd never really given it much thought. <laughs> and I thought, well, who wants to watch, oh, my God, the story about these two people who had really f- no talent, and then became drug addicts and so who the hell is going to watch this i'm not i said i wouldn't go and see it you know i'm not interested in it and uh anyway but i liked uh, uh, and the script was it was it was pretty good and the, the story but i just thought i'm not particularly interested in it and alex cox he was lovely and a good director and all the there were good things about it and I thought, I don't really want to do this. And my, my girlfriend at the time, who, who actually later became my, became my wife, uh, Leslie, I remember her. I remember, I remember just sitting in the kitchen one day and she just said, you know, I said, it's a big commitment. And I said, it's going to take a lot of work. I said, I don't, I'm going to have to learn it from the, this whole thing from the beginning. I said, uh, I, don't, I don't know the world. And she said, how much are they... How much are they paying you? And I said, well, the offer's £35,000. Now, back then, you know, £35,000 was... Uh, I, that, was, that was a hell of a lot of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she just said, oh, my God, 35000 Like, it was, it was like we'd won the lottery or something. <laughs> and I said, well, do you think I could make it work? And the thing... Anyway, I... It, it's like anything. Whatever reservations that I've had with things, if I say to you I'm going to do something, then I commit. So whatever doubts or queasiness I had about taking it on, I put it aside and I plunged full in, you know, and it ended up being not, it ended up being not only a wonderful experience, but it became the sort of cult classic now let me put i just want to say god bless him christopher Plummer just recently passed a wonderful actor a wonderful wonderful actor and he hated <laughs> sound of music yeah. right the sound of mucus he called it <laughs> of oh, the, oh, the sound of mucus now i happen to be i happen to be a fan of the movie I think it's beautifully shot. I think there's not a frame in it that's out of place. I remember watching it many times as a kid. My sister had the album. I knew the songs um, and have seen it since. And I still think it holds up. And he is quite wonderful in it. And in fact, the whole thing would unravel if it were not for that 
the casting of that central, that performance, which is Christopher Plummer. But he's younger, it's this, it's that, whatever it is, and I think it's just one of those things about Sid and Nancy. Mm-hmm. And it's old work. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. I think a lot of it now, I look at it and I, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's old work. Mm-hmm. It's a long, it's a long time ago now. You know, it's like getting like a painter going into a studio and going through all the canvases and saying, "Well, look, I painted that. Eh, it's okay. I was twenty right. something years old. Um, I was finding myself, finding my voice, kind of thing." I think that's that. That is what I mean. I don't no disrespect to the people that like it. I mean, there's a lot of people that still mention Sid and Nancy to me, and and. Um, it's like McCartney, who just so wanted to get away from the Beatles. And what does he do now? Right. He embraces it, doesn't he? you just got to say right. you've got to own up and go, you are Paul McCartney. Right. Just now, do you in- feel the same? <laughs> <laughs> do you no. feel the same way about Truck Up Your Ears, which was only a year later? And I just have to say I got a big kick out of it in prepping for this. I read that among the more you know, traditional prep that you and Alfred Molina did for this. I mean, you were reading Orton's work and diaries, but I also, I read that abstinence was an important prep for you, for you both. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. We tried. Yeah. Did you, do you know that I'm, I'm Fred's first screen kiss. (laughs) Lovely couple until until the things went awry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was always that's right. I used to go around telling people that I was always <laughs> I was always rather proud of that. I said I'm I'm Fred's first screen kiss. You know, it's like some some you know it's Marcella Mastriani or Sophia Loren, but you know it it was prick up your ears for right. for us. Yeah, I'm I'm pr- I'm proud of it. You know what I've learned over the years? What's important to me is the journey and the experience and the number of wonderful, wonderful people that I've met and have got to work with and, 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 and be creative with and put less on the end product and put more into what you take away from it. Is, mm. the, is, is the is the experience, I think. I've learned, I've kind of learned how to do that and put less importance on whether, whether it's a good film or an okay film or, you know, it, we all roll the dice on that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just one more before you relocated to America. And that is, uh, that is, of course, the firm, which again was technically a TV film, but uh, another one that people think of as among your great roles. This one was with Alan Clark. And some people have talked about, and I wonder what you think about this. Some people say, meantime, Sid and Nancy and the firm are sort of a trilogy in the sense that you're playing these working class Brits who get themselves into trouble in each of them. Is that just overanalyzing things or do you think you might've been drawn to those sorts of, I mean, we've talked about, I guess, meantime just came along and whatever, but uh, anyway, anything about the firm and if that's one that you think highly of. Well, the firm early on, my plan was, 
and for a while I managed to I managed to to, to pull it off, which was I would do a film, then a play, and if I was lucky enough, I would do a film, and then a play. And for me, uh, the, the 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 films were more 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 rare. I always knew I had a sort of steady work there in the, the it's it's the theatre is always going to be there kind of thing. Films mm-hmm. are come and go, mm-hmm. but and those roles that perhaps I aspired to were down the line for me. The older you get, you know what I mean. You know that there's there's Iago or this Hamlet, you know, and. So what I always tried to do was, you know, a theatre film, theatre film. And I, and I did, I managed that and pulled that off for a while. I think I had done criminal law, perhaps. And then, it, and then, and then I got back and then Alan, Alan called and it was one of those. It was a relatively low budget BBC film, um, crazy three week shoot or something, you know. Now... The more well-known you become and the more offers you get, and there was a window there when I was getting lots of things coming in, um, like any career, you know, it ebbs and it flows. You know, they're, they're, then you're weighing up what you might want. You go, well, I've got this offer over here, but I'd really want to charge ch- This kind of part is interesting to me, so I'm going to turn that one down and I'm going to pursue this one. A lot of the stuff that has come in is really just stuff coming over the across the desk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've not engineered it or or gone after it. Very few. I mean, Hannibal was mm-hmm. one where I'd read the book and I knew he was casting for that character. I knew he hadn't cast that character, and I think I, you know, instigated that and said, you know, if you're still haven't cast it you know I, I i'd love to do it but um it's all t- 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 chance well so here's a come in. i always wondered if this next thing was engineered or not because was it a decision i'm going to move to hollywood around 1990 ish because i want i think i'll have better or i'll get a, i'll there'll be certain roles that might arise in films as a result of moving there or did you move there for state of grace which i think was the first american production i first went to new york in a 81 82 i'd seen it on the movies i'd seen it in the movies and i got there and thought wow i just felt like i was at home i felt completely comfortable there it was like um and it was a a dream of mine to then move and thought you know i could i could live here and then when uh, when state of grace came along i got you know i came out got an apartment it was in new york i mean i had to pinch myself every single day that i had seen these movies like a taxi driver but i'd seen Gangster films, um, you know, Prince of the City and, you you know, these New York films. And I was shooting in New York on the streets playing a gangster. I I, I couldn't believe it. It it was, it was like, 
I just literally had to pinch myself every day working with working with the likes of uh, of, of Sean and the, and the very very talented Phil Joanou, who was a protege of Spielberg and was again on I you know on the on the ascendancy, and I just loved being in New York and made then made it my home for six years or more. That was the uh, first. I think what you would consider an American production, 1990, State of Grace. 1991 was the first movie that you were in of now several that were just sort of acclaimed across the board with a major filmmaker with a huge spotlight, probably a bigger budget. And that was JFK for Oliver Stone coming off of his second Oscar. He had for first platoon, then born on the 4th of July, then JFK. And I think for you, that was another pinch me moment from what I've been able to gather. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, first, it was really the first experience I'd had where there was very little on the page that was written. And um, so he was still even 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 through all of Oliver's research, this mystery figure. And um, and they literally gave me per diem and uh, and and airline tickets, <laughs> and they said go to New Orleans, go to Dallas. Here's a few contact numbers. Go and talk to people and meet people and get a sense of find out who Oswald was. So I was asked to sort of be like a private, like an investigator, and it was a wonderful. Yeah, it was a wonderful experience. I remember I overslept and missed my flight for the first day. Not the first day of shooting, but we were we were rehearsing and I and I missed my flight and uh I was mortified and I couldn't get I couldn't travel until the following morning. So that's how I started and Oliver, you know, he never, he never, he never let me forget that one <laughs> for, for the longest time. Um, and then he would say, "Okay, so you know, we got this group and this group and this group, and we're going to meet tomorrow at ten o'clock." And then he would say, "And Gary, do you need another alarm clock? <laughs> would you like someone to come round and knock on the door and hold your hand and bring you here? You won't miss that, will you? But you're going to sleep in again." You know, he was always teasing me with that one. He right. could. He could be a real ball. He's a he's a ball buster when he wants oh, yeah. to be. Oh yeah, no. It but just, it was uh, a yeah. But it was a great. It was a great experience. He's very very bright, Oliver. You know, so you're working with an intellect that is challenging. And at that time, as a filmmaker, and we here's the other thing, where you feel the budget or the luxury of, of working on a, on, a, on a bigger film like that. We were shooting in all the locations. We had Dealey Plaza that was shut down with all the cars parked. And at a moment's notice, if the sun cleared, if the clouds cleared and it was the right time of day because the shadows of casting the shadows had to be, you know, they had to be right for the... And then we would move whatever we were doing 
it was like we were like firemen. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that bell rings and you got to really get yourself together. So you got to move all the trucks. You got to get 500 people. You got to get all those cars ready. And he would just say, we're moving to Dealey Plaza. <laughs> and, we, <laughs> and we would all head over there. The, the thing that blew my mind was that the back entrance, the underground entrance exit of the, of the Dallas police station had had uh, like a concrete and uh, like a facade that it had been put over it and it had changed since, architecturally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Since, yeah. He got a... They kangered <laughs> the whole thing out took it back to its original look. And that sequence was shot on old television cameras. The one where, where uh, yeah. Oswald gets shot, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and where I get shot, also I'm handcuffed to the original guy that was actually handcuffed. Oh, my to God. Him. Oh, my Big God. Big tall fellow with the Stetson, Jim. Ah. But um, I get shot on the spot, right on the spot where Oswald got shot, being loaded into that ambulance and thing. It was creepy. That's amazing. It was pretty, it was pretty exciting. And then, of course, I watched the sort of screening of the movie and I, uh, I remember turning to the producer and said, I can't believe I'm actually, I'm in this movie. I'm in this movie. This movie's <laughs> terrific. And I'm in it. It's a real movie, guys. <laughs> Well, and and just, you know, the thing that people have always remarked about uh, as far as your your career is just the the range and the and so to literally go from playing Lee Harvey Oswald for Oliver Stone in 1991 to playing Count Dracula for Francis Ford Coppola in 92. This is basically back to back um, a, a part that everybody fought for. Everybody wanted. You got it. And I think the the most interesting thing, if I can ask only just one question about that movie, would be that, and it, I think it connects to Mank from things that we've previously talked about, is that you have said it's not a coincidence that many of your roles, whether it's Dracula or Hannibal or maybe even Darkest Hour, uh, many of the films where you've done some of your best work have been beneath mountains of makeup and costumes and prosthetics and hair and all of that. And why, how, how does that make you feel as an actor when you are, when you are basically almost, or in some cases, totally unrecognizable? Well, I think I, I would say that the more, unrecogni- the more unrecognizable I am, the happier I am. The more unrecognizable, the happier, yeah. But that's Gary's baggage, you know. I think that that's just what we, you know, it's that thing of not being enough, self-loathing. Um, that's just my stuff. And when I disappear, then, then that's okay. You know what I mean? I'm more com- I'm actually I'm more comfortable with it, and it's I find it quite liberating. I mean, I haven't done that many prosthetic. Parts. I mean, I know that with Mank, and we've talked about, you know, David said, I just don't want any of that. I just, you know, 
and then uh, it's been rumoured, you know, it's been said, you know, going naked, he's, you know, Mr... It's like I was Long Chaney or something, you know what I mean? <laughs> and suddenly I go, and you go, hang on, let me count how many times I've worn it over a, a, over a long career. Right, right, I right. could really count it. But I think with Hannibal, again, that was the excitement of this twisted face and just the just the idea of what we could come up with in with that with that character there was always the old dracula but that was that was in the days that was foam rubber we used to wear these big scleral lenses that were glass back in those days so once they would cover the they cover the whole eye and then your eye would dry up there were times when I couldn't get the, you know, they would when I had them in too long, and I and your eye would dry up, and then they would stick to your eye, because you're only supposed to really wear them for like 15 minutes, you know, you're not supposed to wear them longer than that. But you know, your movies, it's you're doing another take, you know, and you look you look at the time and you go, oh my god, I've had them in for 45 minutes. So there were challenges, but it was um, it was great. It was a great experience. And I know that, you know, Francis and I didn't always, we didn't always see eye to eye, but it's Hollywood. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, it is full of that. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah, history yeah. of Hollywood is full of that stuff. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and I just kind of thought, you know, I have said this and I, I've, I, and I truly believe it. He, he is arguably the great American filmmaker. Now, I, and I love Altman and I love Ashby. You know, there's a lot of people on the list and they've made some, you know, they've directed some wonderful films. But if you were teaching film to students and you showed them Godfather Part Two, composition, lighting, set design, costume design, Acting, directing, writing—you—you—you would—you would need look no further than Absolutely. just that. And then, and then you think of the conversation, which is one of my—you know—the rain people. So I, we were going through our thing, professionally and personally, and we we bumped. Was it atoms or whatever, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, uh, once in a while. But the good thing is, is that I wanted to use some footage for the film I directed. And I wrote to him and said, can I, can I use this footage? And he wrote back and he said, you know what, for fr Gary can have whatever he, whatever he wants. And, and we met up. Uh, we bumped into each other at the Cannes Film Festival and it was like, hey, I know we had our differences, but I love you and you know I think you're the greatest filmmaker, you know, and we hugged and, yeah. yeah. Oh, it was great. a great experience. It, yeah. I wanted to cry, I wanted to laugh, I, I wanted to scream. I wa it, it, it was an epic, epic thing. And he yeah. was directing it like it was, like it was a, 
this m- m- huge operatic production. Yeah. Yeah. True Romance, you're playing a pimp in 93. And that, of course, was Tony Scott. 94, a corrupt DEA agent for Luke Besson in The Professional. 97, back with Luke for The Fifth Element as another kind of crazy, colorful villain. Leading into Air Force One, a guy who hijacks the president's plane. And uh, all of this leading up to Know by Mouth, the film that you were just referring to, your directorial debut and is so far the the I believe only film that you've directed but one of the really most acclaimed British films of my lifetime so I want to ask you is there something that you love about a colorful bad guy or did you get typecast in a way that you got lots that's what was coming in were you happy to be playing all these crazy guys or yeah I got type I got typecast okay and um it happens to people that then you want to sort of, you want to really move that, you want to try and turn that ship around. But it's, it's like one of those, you know what I mean? It's like one of those tankers, those, those big tankers, you know, you, it needs about 20 miles to stop. <laughs> you know, those things don't, <laughs> they don't just, um, so yeah, the Luke thing, he had this crazy character, Stansfield, in this sort of almost comic book. I mean, it is, it, it's obviously, it's, it's Luke's movies. They're larger than, they're, they're heightened. They're larger than life. And I did that. And then he contributed to, part produced with, with my producing partner, Douglas. He did Nil by Mouth, uh, initially put up, some of the money for it and I then had to sing for my supper so I had not even read Fifth Element and I said yes I knew the call was coming you help me I scratch your back you scratch right, mine right, kind of thing right. um, and he turned out to be this uh, this crazy <laughs> villain and I had some fun with him but I went into that basically, you know, having not read the script and just sort of blind. But yeah, yeah the the whole villain, the whole villain thing, I I got. And I think where I put, I think where we put a stop to it was with Gordon. Yeah, with all the Batman films. And I uh, believe he originally in his head had the idea of me as the Scarecrow. Okay. And. I I think it was my manager who put the little that that thing in his head, you know. Yeah. Uh, no, but Gordon. What about Gordon? And uh, to his credit, Chris entertained it. Okay, that's kind of interesting. And then we met, and um, because even in I mean, look, you know, Sirius is a good guy, but we don't find out he's a good guy right. for a while. Harry Potter um, for so, our listeners who, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Harry Potter. So it, it would, it, it sort of still came under the umbrella. Yeah. Of, uh, yeah. Well, plus I think people sometimes forget when they're looking at a filmography that this is a human being with a life that has other demands at the same time as well. I mean, and I, I want to prompt you just to talk about how two of those things were essentially 
extenuating circumstances that of course, like anything are going to shape the decisions you make. I believe, first of all, you know, you wanted to tell this story mill by mouth, which was going to require funding that wasn't going to be easy to come by. So something like not just the Besson movies, but Air Force One, that was literally financing your directorial debut. It wasn't right. It wasn't that that was key to doing that. Yeah, I realized that I couldn't fund Neil by Mouth. No one wanted to do it. No one. And the resistance, the resistance to it was, was almost, um, I would say, aggressive mm. and hostile. So I knew that I couldn't make it for the money that Luke... I really knew that I couldn't make it for the money that, that Luke raised... But because no one wanted it and the thing of getting bonded and all of that, I became the bond. You know, we shook each other's hands and I said, I won't spend a, pe- I won't spend a penny more of your, of your... I won't go over budget on, on this chunk of financing. And uh, I added my own money into it. Of course, then I needed to sound mix and do the comp- complete. And so I needed to finance that. And Air Force One came along. Now, I've got to say, I don't want to think, I don't want to lead people to think that it was sort of beneath me. You know what I mean? But I think going in, you know, it's Harrison Ford, summer movie, and it was with a very respected director, Wolfgang Peterson, and it was, uh, it was great. It helped out. I think the movie's, uh, the movie's, the movie's fun. Can you ever get on a, do you ever take a flight where somebody doesn't say, get off my plane, you know, some smart ass? I've had a few, I've had a few of those. <laughs> I've had a few of those over the years. Uh, we, and, uh, you know, and sadly like these things, you, you know, you read a script and it's a little, it's a little, you know, the original script, the concept was a little far-fetched and you think, I'm like, how would we ever, how would we ever get on the plane? But once you kind of move past, once you move past that, then you you have to move, you know, move along, moving along very quickly here. Um, I think the original script was much better. Yeah. And it was dumbed down in, in the rewriting of it. All for a good cause because Nil by Mouth happens. Kathy Burke wins Best Actress at Cannes. Film. Yeah. Now regarded as really one of the one of the greats, as I said, and I just the one thing I'll I'll prod you to share if you don't mind about that is that at the end of that film, who sings "Loving That Man"? That man of mine. Oh, it's my mother. Yeah, who does the voice for it? And I, I, here's what I regret: I my, I was talked out of putting my mother in the film, I, and I really now in. I wish I had, but uh, yeah, that was that was her Kai. That was her singing. Very nice. Yeah. So somebody else who I know and uh, consider a friend, and I believe you do as well, is is Rod Lurie, uh, and that is yeah. the uh, director writer as well of the Contender in two thousand. Rod's a journalist turned filmmaker, uh, and yeah. we've had some fun. Uh, conversations. And I know that he thinks you are the the absolute greatest. And uh, I want to ask you, 
that was a very interesting performance and probably the closest that you came to the sort of accolades that have happened more in recent years. But at that time, I mean, for years and years, people would say Gary Oldman is the greatest actor alive who doesn't have an Oscar nomination. And at that point, you got a SAG nomination. You were on your way. This was playing the congressman, the Republican congressman who tries to block the appointment of the female Democratic senator who's going to become the replacement vice president. Uh, Very interesting movie. And I just wonder, do you think there were external things that kept people from appreciating you more for that? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I've read that there was a sense you had gotten some calls and stuff where people were saying, you know, keep, keep quiet about your personal thoughts or politics or whatever, and that you felt that perhaps that had impeded people's willingness to... I don't, you know... I don't really know. You know, I think I said, I think I said a few things uh, during that time. And honestly, I wasn't speaking as... First of all, I can't vote. I'm still... <laughs> I'm, I, I am, you know, I have a green card. But I'm still, I'm, I'm still one of Her Majesty's subjects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I... Uh, But I wasn't coming, I wasn't speaking as a a Republican, a a conservative. I was just making a few observations about the character and how I sort of viewed him, really. And uh, and it all sort of got um, blown up into a big, it it became a much bigger thing than actually... It really was, you know what I mean? It, like, like these things do. And you, I, I think you could say something, you know, you say something in innocence and, it's, and it, for whatever reason it catches fire and then it goes here and goes there. So there was a big, there was a big, uh, I, I don't remember, I can't, I can't actually really remember exactly what it, what it was. It was kind of, I don't know. It was sort of silliness, really. I, yeah. I, I was I held back. I, I don't. I, I, I don't know. I don't think so. And it was uh, just a great performance, regardless. And uh, I, I loved. Her. I liked the writing. I thought the. I th- thought the just the dynamics of those two. Well, it was the three of them, really, because. But it was it was Shelley and and the her. Jo- Joan Allen's character, yep. uh, this push and pull of the, these wills of these two people, I thought it was a fantastic story. I had met uh, I'd met Rod. I'd been on Rod's show and knew Rod be- really well. I know that he had directed a short. I think he had made a, a short film that was very good, and we got talking, and this, and I responded hugely to the script and we had a it, do you know it was one of the happiest shoots it really was again you know you talk about the less the result and at the end result is terrific but the experience of making the movie was just it was glorious and i remember that and that summer or the end of that summer there in, in richmond was uh a wonderful thing. Yeah. 
Well, just to note again that there are people are these act, you know, any actor that people are studying, there's a life of that person behind the uh, the filmography. I mean, part of the reason that you then had a few years where you were off the screen and then were doing Harry Potter movies and Batman movies. Part of that reason you have said was that you wanted to be at, at home more, right? I mean, it was just, I loved, I think most of most people can relate to what you had said at one point, the desire was quote, the least amount of work for the most amount of money, close quote, for a few years, just because you now we're going to be a single dad, right? Yeah, I had gone through a, a divorce. It's no secret, a divorce and a custody battle. And I ended up having full legal physical custody of these two young boys. And I had a real big decision to make. Should I go away? Also, there was a sort of seismic shift that happened in the industry at that time. Films had migrated to Bulgaria, Hungary, Australia. There was nothing being made in, in California. There wasn't anything being made in New York. All these places got too expensive and everybody started going to these places in Europe to make their films to get a, a, a good a deal. And it was a tax yeah. incentive thing and all of that. Now, I thought, well, I can either be a dad who's away working and, is, and the kids are basically brought up by a nanny, very good nanny, but even so, or I can work less and be a dad. And so uh, I, I couldn't go off to these places anyway. I couldn't take the kids with me, really, because I felt that they want, they need a continuity and they kind of need consistency. They have their school, they have their friends, they have their routine. You know, I can't keep disrupting that. So I just thought, well, you know, I've just got to, I've really got to, I've got to suck it up, earn, earn less, not work as much. And this is, this is, there's a reason for this. Do you know what oh, I mean? I think it's I've, very, I've, yeah. Yeah, I've got this responsibility and I've been given this responsibility and I think I've got to, I've got to, you know, man up to this. I, I think it's very admirable, absolutely. And um, so even the, it sounds, the thing of the least amount, the, the most amount of money for the least amount of time, it sounds so cynical. And it was a glib, it was a thing I sort of threw, again, you know, you throw these things away. It was like an aside. And it has followed me <laughs> <laughs> here, right now, today. With no, but you, you say these things and then they get sort of picked up. Um, and it sounds awfully cynical. Or what, what it meant was that, thank God Harry Potter came along. They paid more than your average indie movie. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They're a big company. Right. The, the thing is a big franchise. And it meant that I could, for the first one at least, take the boys with me because it shot over the summer. And you're killing two birds with one stone there. You're not only doing a big franchise movie but you're also being directed by Alfonso I Caron. I was going to say, yeah, they had great directors, yeah. Right, so you've got this wonderful mix of high-end yeah. auteur 
So that was a great summer because I could take the kids with me. You know, all those Potter kids are like, they came out of that process like geniuses. I mean, the schooling that they got on, on, on those uh, over that seven, ten, whatever years of, of ten years was, was, was fantastic. I grabbed a teacher from them and uh, it was my goal to get my son reading just, but you know, by the time we came back to the states, and that I achieved that. That happened. Wow! But we had we had a wonderful teacher. Well, they also introduced you to a whole new generation of people who might not have known Gary Oldman from a hole in the wall, right? I mean, a, a bunch oh, of kids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, Do you know? I said to someone on the set the other day, I mentioned Dudley Moore, and this actor said, "Who's that?" I went, you don't know Dudley Moore? I said, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. He went, I don't know, who's Peter Cook? So, so yeah, it does happen, you know, when they, when, when, when you, if you, if, if you, if they're too long a period yeah. between films, you can have a whole generation that come along and then they, then they don't know who you are. So my fan base went, you know, from, kind of 60 to six. <laughs> uh, and uh, I've got little kids coming up to me saying, um, do you know the funniest story I ever... We were in a, we were in a, a, a camp, camping with uh, some families and kids from the school back in the day. And uh, I ran into my dentist, of all people. And he said, oh, my son's over there. He said... Um, he loves Potter, and would you go over and if, if you just walked up to him and just, he said he would, it would make his night. So I went over there and uh, he was looking at me and I said, I said, Ben, I think his name was, I said, hey, Ben. I said, do you know who I am? I'm Sirius Black. And some kids said, no, you're not, you're Commissioner Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> that's great that's great <laughs> that, was, that was just fantastic they were like eight seven or eight years old oh my fantastic God. those kids yeah so it did it 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 helped me you know it helped me batman and potter helped me in that in that respect enormously yeah, yeah. so in the home stretch here we just this amazing last uh few years of i guess sort of a one, two, three punch. Let's, let's talk first Tinker Taylor soldier spy, which I think is amazing in the sense that for you, as for Alec Guinness years before, this was intimidating. This was the kind of thing where apparently you called up the filmmaker right before and almost backed out because it was, so why was it so intimidating and how did you get past that? Oscar nomination number one uh, obviously came as a result of that. I think I had built up, I had seen the original series, was in awe of Guinness. Not that one consciously models oneself on these people, but, you know, part of the dressing up and the prosthetics and the characters, it's because my heroes were Peter Sellers and Alec Guinness and these people that, you know. So I felt that it was somewhat, one is in the tradition of that. And... I think I just psychologically just built up this this dragon. The p- comparisons are going to obviously be there. 
And how could I even remotely measure up to Guinness? It is suicide doing this. And I got to, I got into a real, I got into a real state with it. And I started to get stage fright. Had that happened before? Never. Never. And, and, and since I've spoken to people, people that I know, people that I've worked with, and they've said, oh, yeah, that happened to me, or I went through a period where that happened. I mean, I was never a nervous performer or on stage. You know, you get first-night jitters, and but I was uh, always very... I felt very relaxed on stage. So it wasn't a thing I was used to, and it just hit me. It hit me like a truck, and I got... was just completely and utterly terrified. And I... We spoke to the producer and I said, you know, they'd already started shooting and it was only days away. And I just said, I really, I can't do this. And it was, I think it was Tim Bevan said to, uh, said to Doug, well, what do you, what, you know, what do you normally do when, uh, when Gary gets like this? You know, what, he said, it's just stage fright, isn't it? He said, what do you normally do? And he says, we don't normally do anything because I've never experienced it before. But there was no turning back, and I got on the set. As soon as I stood there on the set, and I saw the cables, and I saw the lights, and the camera, and the other actor, it was my first day, I think it was with Tom Hardy, I thought, oh, yeah, I know where I am. And we did the first rehearsal, and all that fear and all that anxiety and everything just seemed to sort of disappear. It just evaporated. But it was a big dragon I had to... I built up this thing, you know? Um, amazing what our imaginations and our minds... I was already writing the reviews. Yeah. <laughs> and they were not good. <laughs> In my head, they well, were not good. Fortunately, yeah. they, they ended up being very good. And uh, um, as was the case, of course, with very much so with Darkest Hour. And I think that it's interesting, the thing there for you that was, I heard you were literally not going to do the movie if you didn't have Kazuhiro Suji do the makeup. This is a young but retired makeup artist who had done yeah. Benjamin Button and stuff, but he was out of the game. You went to lobby for him to do it and apparently you told him I'm not doing this if you don't do it why was why was that so essential to you well I felt that really the makeup this might sound a bit crazy but the makeup was for you more than it was for me you know to to work on Churchill as I did and rehearse all the work on the character was 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 done in my kitchen. You know, you, you know. I I know there's there's this thing of looking back at looking in the mirror and seeing the character looking back at you, and I think maybe more so with Churchill. But I was playing again. You know, when they first came to me about it, I I said, well, I don't know. I mean, Chamberlain maybe if I lost some weight. <laughs> you know. I said I could think of a few characters I could play, uh, Buster Keaton maybe or uh, Stan Laurel, but I don't I don't think um, Churchill. You've got to be kidding me, and I laughed it away, initially, 
So I did feel that I needed some help to sell it. You know, would an audience accept me looking the way I look, playing, playing Winston Churchill? And even, as you know, I mean, even the silhouette is iconic, isn't it? You see that hat and, that, and the cigar, you go, it's Churchill. I mean, so that was a, an important thing. And I just happened to believe that Kazu is the only man on the planet that could have done it. You knew him from one of the Planet of the Apes? Yeah, I did. I, I was almost in a, I was almost in a Planet of the Apes with Tim Burton, and that that never worked out. But I'd had the casting and the fitting, and I also knew um, Rick, you know, the makeup wizard, Rick Baker, and and that. So I met Kazu and just remembered, and then later saw the movie. Oh my God, did I see the movie? Of course, my kids. Oh, they love that Tim Burton movie. I must have seen that thing. <laughs> I've got to say, I saw that thing like eight times just at the cinema. Oh, so <laughs> I'm very familiar with it. Um, but I'd seen that painting and the work that, that, that he had done. And um, so I knew Kazu was, the, I, I knew he was the guy. And he thought it was impossible. I met Kazu and he said... We're looking at you both and looking at the bone structure next to each other. And he was very reticent a bit. He, he just said, um, I don't know if, that, if, if, I can, if I can make you, do you know what I mean, or do yeah. it to a level where I'm happy with it. Right. You know? And I was just like a dog with a bone with him. And I just said, just try it, just try it, just do your thing. And we did a head cast. And, and he did something very... Uh, he did something very clever with it, where it was a wonderful sort of um, uh, hybrid, almost. It was it it gave the real spirit of the essence of Churchill, but I don't I don't think I was lost completely in the makeup, and that it came the energy and the thing of the character came through. That's incredible. It was. I was very happy at the end of the day that I had I was in almost every scene. I, I was in every day, and it was four hours plus every morning. For the makeup, yeah. I re- Joe Wright said he never saw you, I think, except for Christmas lunch. <laughs> yeah, we had Christmas lunch, and I was, I was, I was scary. But, yeah, yeah, uh, I, yeah uh, I would come in early and be ready on set, and then at the end of the evening, everybody would go. So it, it by the time I'd had dinner... I got home and had had dinner. By the time I put my head on the pillow, the average day was about 17 hours. Did you have a sense, though, that this was all worth it, it was really working, or did you have to see the movie to know that it had worked? I think we had a feeling, and I saw... I'd obviously seen some of the tests because um, it, that was paramount. Yeah. You know, and then we saw the... Uh, we saw a, a screen test, a makeup test, and we just thought, you know what? A little tweak here, a little tweak there, and I think this is, I think this is going to work. And amazingly, um, I think there's five moments in the movie where they've just touched in a little bit of uh, lace on the wig or, you know, there's very little CGI, CG yeah. on it. It was all done through the, the makeup and the painting of it. Yeah. Well, and I guess the ultimate test 
is when, you know, this is not something people should understand that that usually happens. You did your blood, sweat and tears speech. And what happened? Oh, I don't know. What did happen? Wasn't there? That was Remind a room. <laughs> I think there was from what I've what I remember hearing Joe say and reading about the extras gave you a standing ovation. That doesn't yes. happen. Yeah, that doesn't that was, happen. Well, the, the, this is what, I, and, to, and, and to his credit, Joe wanted to fill the space with people. So he wanted, you know, 500, 600 people rather than 200 people and then fill it full of CG people. So he was very, very adamant that he wanted a practical set that he could fill. Now, we know that a lot of these speeches that, of Churchill's that were recorded were recorded after the event. And even his speech, you know, we shall fight on the beaches, they may have, I think they may, the, the image I have is that the BBC turned up with their recorder and he had, had a few glasses of wine and, and was in bed and they stuck a microphone under his face. Do you know what I mean? You know, it, uh, it, uh, what's it, as you know, the Germans are, you know, that's a bad impersonation, but you, but, but uh, I haven't done it for a while, but it's that sort of thing. Of, he's, stuck, he's stuck in bed and they stick this microphone under his thing. And I, I took the liberty. I thought, well, would they sound like that when he's rallying the house with an audience? I thought, would he have not attacked it maybe with a little more energy and a little more gusto. And he was not, an, he was an actor, you know, he knew, he knew how to promote. And he, I think he was one of the first people who was, to, I mean, talk about self-promotion. <laughs> and, and, branding. you know, yeah. and, and, and branding and the image, come yeah. on. I mean, he was, so, uh, yeah, so I gave it a bit more, you know, once more into the breach, sort of a bit more Henry, Henry V. And, um, uh, and yeah, and they when the crowd just, yeah, did rise to their feet and uh, thing. I mean, the, here's the nice thing. They just recently ran, and I don't, I'm more, I'm more proud of this than anything. They recently ran the top 10 people that played Churchill from 10 to, to number one. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I made number one. That, of all the people, right? Right, of all the people, and I know, you know, I thought Albert Finney, I thought Albert Finney's pretty good <laughs> in that one. And, and, uh, but I was, uh, I read this silly little thing. I mean, it, in the scheme of things, but I thought, oh, that's nice. And I sent it to uh, Randolph Churchill, and uh, who I've stayed, I'm some of the Churchills I've stayed in touch with since the film. And um, I, I sent it to Randolph and I just said, you know, I sent him the link and I just went, I'm really chuffed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I said, I'm really chuffed with this, like that. And he did, and he kindly wrote back and he said, and you get the endorsement of the uh, family. You that's know, awesome. They were always, uh, they were always very, very, very kind, very generous. Well, I think that was very deserved and everybody thought the Oscar was. And I guess I wondered, as someone who had for many years not been kind of recognized when a lot of us thought you should have been, what did that mean to you to get your turn there? I remember being there that night. It was a treat to 
get, you know, you could tell there's, there's sometimes there's the polite response to somebody winning and then there's the enthusiastic response. And this was certainly enthusiastic. And um, I remember even just watching you as you went into the governor's ball afterwards. And I think you almost dinged your Oscar, if you remember on the, on the way in, I had taken, I was, I had my phone out and I captured it, (laughs) but uh, I think accidentally bumped it against the railing or something. But anyway, just, I know that awards aren't everything, but did that, was that a special thing for you? Well, we do this, this thing that we do, I, I act, you know, Joe directs, so-and-so makes costumes. I mean, we're all doing it. We, like I say, as the older I've got, the more I want the journey and the experience to, to be creative and fulfilling. The alchemy at the end it's, it is, it's ones and zeros. I mean, who knows? You, you put a film together and you just got, it works. And then you could, with the best intentions, be in a, in a to, you come together and you go, oh, kind of worked or that didn't work, did it? I don't know what that, ma- that magic of it all really coming together at the end is, is, uh, is something else. But I, I, we do this things for, for people to see it. And if they like it, that's better than them not liking it or hating it or just even just dismissing it as like mediocre. You know, um, there's nothing there's, there's there's nothing worse than um, you know just like boring people. You know, especially a movie. I mean, that's almost you can. I've seen I've seen it on stage. You, you know, but in a film, it's almost fucking unforgivable. That is, you know, you, go, you know, ninety minutes, and I was I was bored in the first twenty. I'm sure you know what. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean there, but the uh, yeah. So if people like it, it's uh, nice, and maybe I had been ignored, overlooked. I didn't always play the game. I remember a publicist saying to me, you've got to come out to America, you know, why don't you come out with Prick Up Your Ears, you know, we could get you an Oscar nomination. And I think in my arrogance and my youth, you know, just sort of said, I don't, well, I don't need an Oscar. What are you, <laughs> you know, you just would say these things. You're a kid. Really, you're a kid. Obviously, when you're not in the whirlwind of it, it is something happening over there. And it's very nice. And, and, you, and you vote and you watch this thing and you go, oh, they didn't win, or yeah, that's all I wanted, and you, you, you thing, and it comes, it goes. When you're in the whirlwind of it, it, it becomes everything. You, and you realise what a big deal it is. You, you don't actually realise until you're in it. You go, this is... This is a, I guess this is a big deal, this thing. It's like winning, um, the, the, it is, it's winning the gold medal, the Olympics. It's, it's um, it, you know, and, my, I, I, and on top of that, I, my competition was not chopped liver, no. you know. And uh, so it was, I think it was, it was doubly gratifying that it was, a, it was also a, a, a tough race. But it's, I guess it's a moment that you, 
you dream of, that you you can't believe you're holding the Oscar. And then you come off stage. All that's a... You don't even remember, really. But it, I remember seeing Denzel <laughs> smiling at me. That's about all I kind of remember. Um, but 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 you, you're actually up there holding it, looking out. It's something. The way you've described it really reminds me. I, I read David Niven's memoir, and he talks about the year of separate tables where you know, he was also well into his career by that point and had never, I don't know if he'd even been nominated, but that was, that was when he won. And he said, you know, he'd had that same sort of, Oh, you know, I'm not going to get that invested. And then by the end of the season, when you see that every person comes up to you and has something to say to you, people that you never knew, you know, never had it. It's, it is probably very surreal, I would imagine. And then to get to the finish line and be, be first is, uh, you know, he had a he had a funny take on it, but yeah. yeah. But you never know. Here's the thing about it: is that you, we had a clean sweep. Yeah. So, and it was along for the ride was Alison Jenny, Francis right. McDermott, that's right, and uh, Sam Rockwell. Yeah. You know, we were all every to every event. Yeah. yeah. We would go, hey, how are you? <laughs> you know, you and, and we were winning. These consistently winning. So you had an inkling on the big night that it, that it might happen. But with the, the Oscar, it's a thing. We t- I mean, with Tinker Taylor, we were at the BAFTAs at the Albert Hall. George Clooney came up to me and he said, I'm glad, he said, I'm really, I'm glad I'm here tonight. He said, because this, I want to see this place go nuts <laughs> when, you, when you win. He said, it's your night, kid. <laughs> and he said, I just, this place is going to go mad. You know, and as, as, as he says, isn't it, to Brando, it just went your night, kid. <laughs> <laughs> and we all went, yeah, we all went off to the loser's table. And Clooney said, come and join us on the, on the loser's table. But... <laughs> You know, you kind of think, oh, it could be. It could. So you never know. How, you never. You, right. you absolutely Oscars and the BAFTA. They're strange. They're a strange one. Totally. You know? Absolutely. I don't think. Uh, I don't. I don't think anyone from. I mean, most recent example where it's like nobody saw it coming, not because it wasn't deserved or anything, but just nobody saw it coming was Olivia Coleman when she. Everybody thought it was going to be Glenn Close that night. It can happen where you win every single thing and then you don't win the big night. Yeah, and I had presented, I think, to Glenn three times. That's right, because you were the previous uh, uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it was like three, I think, three events that we we, uh, presented, you know, and you thought, well, then it's going to be going to be the big night so felt sorry for her all right well this brings us finally and i thank you so much for your patience and humor through all this i know it's not uh (laughs) but this brings us to what i think is as good as anything you've ever done and that is herman mankiewicz in mank for david fincher who you i think first talked about working with 30 years earlier when he was getting ready to do his featured debut with Aliens 3. How did this get broached all these years later? Did you know anything about Herman Mankiewicz beyond 
that he existed, you know, just uh, take me into hearing from David Fincher, I guess, probably out of the blue. Yeah, well, because I sort of have known him uh, and, and, you know, socially, and we're not having dinner every week. I mean, it's not like a, <laughs> that kind of relationship, you know. But uh, I thought, oh, well, you tend to look at people, I don't know, some directors tend to look at people differently because they know them that they don't cast them or it's too close. It's I, 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 So I kind of thought, yeah, probably never going to work with Dave, but, yeah, it's okay. And then I was working on something and as it were, behind the curtain, behind the scenes, my uh, producing partner, who is one of the producers on Mank, Douglas Abansky, he was chatting with David and going through other things of even, you know, where do you go? How much do you need? Where's the money? Do we go here? We got net, you know, but what kind of, all those things that you talk about. And they wanted to sort of um, firm it up a little not fully baked, but have it somewhat cooked so that they could come to me. And then he, uh, and then I, I spoke with Doug and he said, uh, okay, I've got something really, I think it's just, you, you're going to love this, David Fincher. Wow, really? Yeah, and he's doing the thing. And then, of course, you find out, oh, my God, it's mank, it's, uh, almost uh, an honorarium to old Hollywood, yet it's showing the glamour and the real side of it. That's, that's Mank, the story, Orson Welles, Citizen Kane, Marion Davis, Hearst. And then, of course, you go, oh, my God, what he's going to do with it? Because it's Fincher. And... You think, well, he's going to, he's going to, you know, and, and then it was it's black and white, black and white. Oh, <laughs> you know, it just got more juicy as it, as it, sort of went, as it, as it went along, you know. And uh, it was really uh, not, it wasn't something I, like the other, like the other things, you know, like I say, you know, well, I turn them down first and then they come in. I was very, very much persuaded to. You should do this. Yeah, I should do this. Even though, as you've said to me before, there was some apprehension, if not hesitancy, apprehension that there was not going to be any makeup, prosthetics, hair stuff that sometimes gives you that sense of security, which not that people necessarily know what Herman Mankiewicz actually looked like in the way they do what Churchill did, but I mean, for you, that that's asking a lot to to play a real person, right? But no, you're you're going to be as as David put it, naked. Yeah, I mean, I've always gone. Some of the people that I've played, it's well, it's expected. It, it's almost. I'm not. I don't look exactly like Joe Walton, but I think Stephen wanted me to have the hair and the haircut and the and the clothes, you know, to go some way towards looking a little like Joe, capturing the character or the, or the spirit or whatever of a character is, I think, really, it's up to you and the, and, the, and, the, and the work and the acting. I think that's really, it's, that's, it sits there. But, but, you know, Sid Vicious, you have to, you know, the leather jackets, the spiky hair. So 
I looked at these pictures of Herman and I thought, hmm, well, I don't obviously look like him, but I suppose I could maybe do something, you know, and you start kind of having ideas about it. And then David just said, look, you know, I, I put on some weight. I liked the idea. Uh, I certainly liked the idea of him being a, like a, a slightly bloated, not blo but, you know, a whiskey, a, like a whiskey drinker kind of, you know. And I'd lost weight for Sid Vicious. I put on a few pounds for a smiley and it to never, never, never really took them off. And then just kind of added, just kind of added that to, I took Smiley and Mank and I just kind of put, put them together. Um, but uh, so that, I, I, I did that, but Dave just said, I don't want a veil or any, I don't want anything between you, between you and the audience. And I think... In hindsight, and I've seen a couple of things he said in print, it makes more sense to me now what he's saying than it did at the time when he, you know, David's not going to give you, David's not going to give you medals for acting. You know what I mean? I mean, he's not one of, he's just not one of those directors. I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's, you don't do a take and then he, oh, yeah, well, you know. You could do 90 takes and he might not do that, right? Oh, you could do 90 takes, but he, he just does that and that's that. That's what you get. You get that. You know, come in and go, brother. Yeah, right. Uh, brother. And then, we, and, then we're, and then we're swiftly moving on. But I get the, the thing. He wanted the roar, me, just with nothing between us, between, between the audience. And, and um, all it really did is it gave me it gave me anxiety for about five minutes. I mean, it wasn't um, it, it wasn't a thing. And I thought, oh, really? Just so, what am I going to do? And and uh, we just played with. Uh, I mean, I'll give you a, a for Smiley. I saw Smiley as an owl, like very still, but an owl that can turn its head. And just see and just see these things. That's that's the kind of animal or the thing I thought a wise old owl. And those glasses are like big, like eyes. They're like big, kind of like owl. And all I did was part my hair on a different side, put a little grey in it. But that was it. It was part the hair on a different side and glasses, and. That can make an enormous difference. You know, you can really just change the way you look by doing that. And, and, and people don't even realise and they go, what is it? What is it? And you go, the hair's parted different, you know, and they go, God, I wouldn't have. So you can, it's like a magician. It's like a little uh, illusionist, you know, it's like a little trick. You can, you can sleight of hand that you, that you can do. Does that work Internally as well, is that the same thing where, um, I mean, you've spoken very openly about the fact that years ago you had your own alcohol issues. When you're now going to play a guy who's a, an alcoholic, is that of any use or does the fact, or is each alcoholic's experience completely different in terms of how they experience that affliction? I think that there's... Um... Certainly each alcoholic's bottom varies and is different. They only know that. You know, I even if someone was drinking, I would never ever say to anyone, 
you're an alcoholic. It's not my place. They have to know that they're an alcoholic, you know what I mean? But there's a certain, there are certain behaviours, there's certain thinking that, in a way, that's why the success of AA, that, I mean, that's why it's, in a, in, you know, coming together. You think you're crazy. And there's that old story of um, a, a guy who believes he can fly and he just keeps jumping off the roof and ending up in hospital, you know, the thing. And it's like that thing of, no, I really do next time. The next time it's going to be, you know, I, I know I can do it. I know I can do it. And people, if you met someone like that, you would go, they are mad. They are insane. They, they, this person is absolutely insane. You meet the same person in an alcoholics meeting and they say, I believe I could just fly and jump off this building. I kept jumping off to the building. And you'll meet another person there who won't go, God, you're insane. They'll go, yeah, I know what you mean. There's this sort of, that that's why they help one another. There's, sort of, there's a bonding there of you recognise the alcoholic in, the other, in, in yourself and in the other person. And I think, so I think that there are certain patterns and, th and ways of thinking, behaviour that is common, that alcoholics, I think, all share. And he had some of the classic, I mean, he suffered from, obviously, the self-effacing humour and the humour that it's, it's, that's already a, a, a protection yeah, poor Sarah or whatever he says to the yeah, wife. And it, yeah, and it, and it pushes away the feelings of inadequacy and all that stuff he was obviously feeling. Yet there's big shotism, there's ego there, you know. Um, this is all beneath me. I'm much better than this. So there's sort of classic things. And I have to give Jack Fincher a lot of credit this is David's late father who wrote the David's years late ago. father yeah. who wrote yes yeah, sorry who wrote the script now David admits that you know his father sadly wasn't around and we rehearsed and there were things that were sort of dusted off rewritten but they were as David said you know his father had read about being in movies had read about being on a movie set. David does that for a living. Mm -hmm. So there is some romantic thing about it that David wanted to kind of like remove because he just said, that's someone reading about being in the mm -hmm. movies. Mm -hmm. I'm in the movies and this is, you know, <laughs> so you know the mechanics and the workings of it. But uh, with something like Sid and Nancy, we went off and we researched and I met people who were heroin addicts and who were ex-heroin addicts and you start to get a sense of the junkie and the patterns of a junkie and things like that. And then you, what we did is we came and then put it in the script. I, 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 didn't have to do, I didn't have to do that with Mank. I know that David's, father, David's father's father was evidently an abusive alcoholic. But he understood alcoholism because it was there in the, it, it was really there in the writing. And I, I, I didn't have to look too far beyond the material. To, to, this, this character was, it was there on the page. 
Well, I think it's one of the best things you've done. I so recommend it to everyone. And I really cannot thank you enough for just being so great with your time today and with previous things. We did our roundtable, which I hope people will go check out and just uh, such a privilege to get to speak with you. So thank you for doing it. Thank you, Scott. It's been for nice, been nice reminiscing, <laughs> walking down memory lane. Thank you. Be safe. Thanks very much for tuning into Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.